And so he was really encouraging me. And so we ran. And when I ran for this one run, for, and it was like eight kilometers, right? I felt absolutely terrible at the end of it. But I actually felt different. Hi, I'm Paul Fink. And this is Stroke of Luck, the podcast about overcoming adversity and the challenge life throws at you. Today's guest is Tristan Miller. In 2014, at the age 34, my life was turned upside down by a large stroke. The stroke left me with a speech difficulty called aphasia, which means it can be hard to articulate all of my thoughts easily and understanding complex questions and information. That's why I decided to write this introduction and read it out word for word rather than speaking off the cuff. I'm always keen to face new challenges, like hosting this podcast, Stroke of Luck. I'm keen to learn from other people about how they have tackled or faced adversity in their lives and talk about how that has shaped and changed them. Tristan Miller is an ultra marathon runner, motivational speaker and author and world record breaker when he became the first person to run 52 marathons in 52 weeks including 42 countries and all seven continents in 2010. He spent many years working in ad sales but he decided to sell everything to fun an amazing crazy adventure. He turned his life totally around when he found running. He now works full-time in Melbourne with his wife and two young kids. Tristan's story of heroism and misfortune shows that a normal regular guy can change his stars with the right motivation and never give up attitude. As a runner lover, I was keen to hear Tristan's story of overcoming his challenges and the learning and outcomes of that. So Tristan ran 52 marathons in 52 weeks. I've got one main question. Why? <laughs> Just start with the uh, the small questions and build from there. Um, it's a it's it's obviously a long story, which is why you've got me on the podcast. Yeah. But um, but I actually think any of those really crazy things that people do in life and it's not a one kind of moment decision um i think it's easy especially if i'm on stage telling my story to a large group of people i don't talk about the layers of it i do kind of talk about it as though it was a it was a bit of an instantaneous decision to take off and see the world and do something different and there were a critic a few very critical moments like pivotal moments that I can speak to when that sort of made me just decide that it was okay that I could do this but the reality is I um I had a bunch of moments uh and and you and I actually we've met through a fellow called Kevin Lieberthal and Kevin I remember going for a run with him one time in 2009 and we were training for uh, the Comrades Ultramarathon in South Africa. 
and uh, and we were talking about all these different things, and we were out there for hours, like five, six hours at a time. And a few years before that, I couldn't run a lap of Albert Park Lake, which is like five kilometres. Mm. But then I'm at this point where I'm running and running and running, and there was a little disillusion. They um, there was a global economic crisis. Uh, I was working for Google at the time. Um, I would have said I was doing okay at Google, but not amazingly well, you know, like it was like going to be the only job I had moving forward. But I was I was happy that I was in a job at Google growing with a company that was growing that fast, um, investigating things like YouTube as a new premise for advertising and all this new stuff. Like it was really fascinating stuff for me. Um, but I all the people in the Melbourne office felt that there was not enough of a reason to keep the Melbourne office. So we all kept questioning, like, is this going to happen? Are we going to stay here? Like, is this, are they just going to shut us down? And so I remember running, not sure what was going to happen next. Um, and I kept talking to, to Kevin and his wife, uh, uh, Lauren, who was running with us. When we were talking about all the different things that we, we should be doing with this time while running. And I discussed the fact that I'm like, like, we should be recording, you know, like videos on the shoes and the equipment we wear because we just, we've discovered so much over this period of time about all the different things that we should use, you know, um, and the things that help you go for longer. And because you're out there for so long, it really doesn't matter what, type of shoes you're wearing like if you wanted to try some new shoes a few days later you're still running another 50 60 kilometers in training you know you're running like literally 50 k's on a saturday and 30 k's on a sunday so you get plenty of time to chat to kill to do some sort of conversations about the equipment you use and all that i'm like we should be recording this and putting it on youtube and we should like do that and go to different races and record the events that we go to. And when we go to South Africa, we should record that and put it on YouTube. And so all of these things were like early thoughts on content creation and how to be a YouTube star. And it was super new at that stage. There were like really popular YouTube channels, really popular people on YouTube already. You wouldn't have called them influencers as such, but you would have said that there was the development of that space happening in 2009. It was it was on. Not not many people had proper mobile phones. Everyone was still kicking around with Blackberries and all that kind of stuff. Like so, it wasn't really streaming video onto a tablet, you know, so much. And um, and we kept talking about it. And we kept talking about it, and you know, nothing really eventuated except for the fact that we went to the Canberra Marathon. Um, and when we're at that marathon as like the qualifying race to go to Comrades in South Africa in 2009, at the Canberra Marathon, there was a magazine there called Distance Running Marathon uh, Magazine. It was There's a big, in the center, a calendar of all these events all around the world. Um, and they're all the AIMS registered ma um, events, marathons and half marathons. So AIMS being the Association, Association of International Marathons, or something to that effect. Um, and so I looked at this list and I'm like, how good is this list? Like you could literally go in January to these three races in different parts of the world, in February to this race and that race and do all that kind of stuff. And, I, you know, and just go through this list, like how good this document of, you know, of just ideas. And, you know, I just thought it was really fun. Anyway, 
none of that really mattered. We went off to um, South Africa and we went and did Comrades. Um, but just before we went, like literally a month before we went, uh, Google decided to shut the Melbourne office. And they shut a bunch of satellite offices around the world. And there were all these jobs that I could go for at the time because I'd just been working at Google for the last couple of years. Like I was going to get a job. Like it wasn't, that wasn't so much a problem. You're still in software, which wasn't, was still reasonably buoyant in a global economic crisis. Um, but did I want that? Anything I looked at felt like a step back. Mm. Let's go, go back a bit. Um, yeah. Tell us about your, yourself and your upbringing in Melbourne. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess all of those things collide at about that point anyway. Because growing up, I grew up in um, Belgrave in the east of Melbourne, kind of in that area. I never, like I went to primary school out there, but then I went to Box Hill High School. And then my brother went to Melbourne High School. And so I followed him there in the city. And so I spent a lot of time commuting in and out of town. And I would have said my early running ability um, was born of chasing trains. Because uh, you couldn't really ride bikes up and down the hills out there. Like it was a massive hassle. Like BMXs and stuff like that. Like you had a mountain bike if you could afford a really good mountain bike. But apart from that, so I was always late for the train. Um, and the train was probably a, let's say, a 15-minute walk from my house, max. Um, but I got, I was able to run it in five minutes. Do you know what I mean? Like to get that damn train so I could get to school. So yeah. that were the early days of me trying to be able to run. Um, but, you know, uh, I didn't really have a big history at that. So I, I didn't run at all until after school until much, much later. Any adventurous growing up? I mean, I always thought I'd do something cool. I didn't know what it was. Mm. Um, I always wanted to travel. So running, not so much, but I always wanted to see a lot of the world. And I think it come, it's, that's born of living in Belgrave and feeling like everything's far away. And Belgrave's a really nice place to live now. I got to tell you back then, like, I mean, it was nice. Um, but you know, it didn't have cool cafes or anything like that. Um, you know, you get mugged on the train station, like if you're out late, like it was just a bit yuck. Um, but it's where we could afford, uh, it's where mum could afford. And I was, you know, single mum, four kids, had a step, a stepdad that came and went a little bit. Um, he used to tell me about his big trips around the world. You know, my dad had traveled a lot. My mum didn't really travel much, but as soon as I was, old enough like I had aspirations to go into Hollywood making movies right that's kind of what I wanted um, and I went to a film and TV uh, um, school or uh, Deakin University had a course and I wanted to learn more about that because I thought maybe I could you know go over there and just make movies um, in the end that's not the direction it took me it took me to the UK because I could get a passport like get a passport and get a visa easily I couldn't necessarily get to uh, get to Hollywood but at least I could find that path over there and start working in that the industry over there a little bit so some of these questions might be more personal um hop yeah. up you okay yeah no problem reading a few a few articles for about you um sounds like you're um i guess not happy with your direction in your in your life in your your 20s and if you remember, what was going on you in your life at this time? 
Um, it's funny because I think this, like, there's an expectation that that you know, in your twenties, you just gonna either figure stuff out really quickly, or not, you know. And I was somewhere in the middle of that. I got married early. I went to the UK. I had a girlfriend that I met at university, Deakin University. I was in love with her as soon as I met her. And, you know, maybe I just fall quickly. I don't know. Um, she, after a year or so, came over to the UK. Even less than a year, I was over there by myself for quite some time. Um, and then she followed me over and then we travelled around Europe, you know, in a in a van. And we did all the stuff. And when, you know, we were travelling in Europe, we got engaged to get married. Um, her name was Sarah. She was lovely. She's still lovely. I, don't, I mean, I don't really speak to her anymore, but I'm sure she's still lovely. When I went to the UK, I just wanted to party. I just wanted to party all the time. And when I came back to Australia, I just wanted to keep partying. Like it was just the nature of being in your 20s, exploring lots of dumb stuff. I'm not going to lie, I took a lot of party drugs and all that kind of stuff. And I did a lot of, went to a lot of big dance parties and I had a really good time. Um, I don't think that defines me but what I did find was when I was back in Australia in my mid-20s even married even after we bought an apartment and got real jobs like I was working for you know an insurance company for a bit and then working at 3AW radio um, when I was doing that kind of work I wasn't happy and when I was even in that part apartment being married at the age of 24 turning 25, got engaged in Europe, seemed perfectly romantic, came back, got married, went into our lives, bought an apartment in St Kilda. I mean, you're from Belgrave, right? So if you buy an apartment in St Kilda, you think you've just absolutely made it. <laughs> and um, and yet I wouldn't have said I was happy. I didn't know why. I can't blame Sarah. She definitely wasn't happy. <laughs> mm. But that was largely, I found myself working in nightclubs a lot, even when I didn't need to, because I felt like, like retrospectively, um, I think I was just trying to escape and keep the party going and be excited and be who I thought I was, which is a really upbeat, engaged, exciting person, even if it was just in small patches when I was drunk. You know, like that would make me happier because in my day job, I, I, I didn't love what I was doing. Like I was selling airtime for 3AW Radio. Like it's nothing wrong with that gig. I know a lot of really cool people who did that for a long, long time, but I just didn't love it. And I knew it's probably not what I wanted to do forever. And so I was seeking a way out of it. And I think I partly sabotaged my relationship to sabotage my life to sabotage that situation because it all felt fragile and I just wanted to break it. Mm. So that's kind of where I was in my 20s. How do you handle your divorce? How did I handle it? I um, Well, that's probably the bit that you read <laughs> in the various articles is I just got drunk a lot because I had very easy access to alcohol and to drugs working in nightclubs and bars. Around Melbourne, it was what I did for a number of months yeah. um yeah, yeah it wasn't pretty these factors in your decision to be a runner so so not immediately i 
I wouldn't have, I, I would have said even at the end of my divorce, I was running a little bit. And so what I realized is, and, and you'll find this a lot, people that aren't happy in their relationships start to do a couple of things. They start to either get fit or get drunk a lot. I did a bit of both. I was actually doing a little bit of running, but you're talking like two or three kilometers max, no more than that, you know? Um, and I'd run around the park in Fitzroy Gardens and then I'd go and that was like me looking after myself so I could go get drunk. Um, after we finally split because we were living in this place and we realised it wasn't going to work out and we split up, um, five or six months later after getting not running at all and getting really drunk a lot, a guy that I was working with, a fellow named Rob Gilbert, he asked me, he said, do you want to come running with me? And I'm like, no, <laughs> absolutely don't. Um, and he's like, you are not in a good place, mate. Like, you are not happy. You are not the person that you were six months ago. Um, and I kind of let on that I was, you know, going through a, a difficult time. I hadn't really told many people at work that I was in a divorce, but I think it was probably pretty clear that I, my relationship had broken down. Um, he didn't really get into that in too much detail, but what he did do is he asked me to go running with him. And so we went for a run and I really didn't want to do it, but this guy, he'd run a bunch of marathons. He, to me, he was an inspiration and an aspiration. Like I, this guy, Rob, I just wanted to be more like him. He was like pretty settled guy. He had two kids. Um, one of his sons, um, has uh, cerebral palsy, which is really difficult to, you know, raise a child with cerebral palsy, but he managed to do that um, and still run and still be incredibly successful in his job at 3, 3RW Radio. Um, and so he was really encouraging me and so we ran and when I ran for this one run, for, it was like eight kilometres, right? Um, I felt absolutely terrible at the end of it. Um, but I actually felt different. And, I, and rather than feeling the same drunk and miserable self, that I had been for some months, I felt different and different enough in that moment to take notice. So I realised that it was a really good thing for me and that actually Rob listened to me a lot while we were running and he asked me lots of questions and I was like running and talking and all that kind of stuff at the same time. Um, but I just, I just found a moment there that was like me being prepared to open up and it was just a really good feeling and I wanted to do it again. And Rob asked me to do it again the next week and I was like kind of hesitant because I felt like I was slowing him down and I was all down on myself about not being fit. Uh, but, of course, I said yes. And we went for another run, another run, another run. And after a number of months, I was running half marathons and stuff, which was pretty cool. And you mentioned you lost your job at uh, Google um, and you received an offer after that, but you decided to say no. It was a um, easy decision, or were determined to travel the world with your fifty-two idea. Yeah, I mean the thing is, Paul. Like, like I was saying at the start, there, I don't think it's one decision that leads you to those moments. Like, it's not like one moment in time. So all those other moments in time that just kind of went, okay, I could be a runner. I could do something a bit different that's more positive and it's more about looking after yourself. And I could grow a bit more by challenging myself, by not doing the same thing, which is just get drunk all the time and be angry, you know. 
So running allowed me to think a bit outside the box, especially after I ran a half marathon and then a marathon in 2005. Um, some, obviously, a few years later, I'd run a few more marathons and I'd kind of joined a running club as well. And we talked about doing comrades and comrades just seemed like this mythical thing that you do. It's a 90-kilometre road race in South Africa. Been going for, you know, now nearly 100 years. Like it just could you even fathom doing this thing, right? Um, and then I was working for Google and everything just felt like it was upside. Like I kind of applied for the job there. It took me many months. So I got that gig. But then when I lost that job and I just run this race over in South Africa, I all of a sudden was like, well, I'm kind of doing all these different things these days. Like I got, had that really cool software job, didn't work out. Um, I ran that race in Africa. I mean, it worked out, but it was really challenging. I had all these ideas about running around the world. And if you're ever going to do something, it's when you're less encumbered with responsibilities, right? And you know this yourself. Like you have kids, that sort of stuff's not viable. You just don't, you don't even talk about it. You don't even think about it because it's just not possible. Um, if I had a partner, a girlfriend or a wife or something like that at that time, never going to happen right so all i could think at that time is i've lost my job i got a bit of a payout wasn't much but it was enough to float me for a few months i had an apartment still in st kilda i actually held on to this apartment so i kind of had means and so the obvious thing to do when you lose a job is to get another job i had a bunch of interviews like i said like random interviews of businesses that said that they would pay me as much money as i was getting before um you know online businesses you know like the you know the various real estate you know um, platforms and that sort of stuff and all I could think was I'm not going to love it I'm not going to like it I feel like I'm going to sell local ads to local people whereas Google I felt like I was selling international advertising to the international world I was part of a global um, solution so from that point of view everything felt smaller and I didn't want to force Muller. I'd had this idea that I wanted to see the world. So taking a job meant security and paying for my apartment and keeping everything the same, but also potentially keeping myself unhappy. So it was either like remain in the box and know that you're secure and you've got the money to pay for the things you've been accumulating or throw it all away. Like, like take a blowtorch, put all your stuff in front of you, burn it all and go and see what the world has to offer you and i say that knowing that i also sold an apartment and had a bunch of money that i could spend to do it but it was really scary probably the scariest moment of my life is saying no to that and selling my apartment against the the i guess the advice of every sane person around me everyone said don't do it don't go running around the world don't waste all your money you'll never get it back You'll never turn this into anything amazing. And if you hurt yourself after week four or month four, that's done. The story's over. So don't risk it, which they were probably right, but that would be their determination, not mine. Yeah, well, obviously, definitely you risking a lot, I, w- I yeah. guess, with most people uh, settling down and thinking about finding a family and... I guess um, the scaredness feeling 
um, was a big factor or more more excited with your idea? Well, I think that fear has two possibilities, right? Fear can make you not do stuff or fear can kick your ass and make you do stuff that you really don't want to do. But that's kind of the point of fear, right? Like it's either supposed to frighten you at just the right time to make you just step away from the flame type of thing um, or put down a sharp knife or it's supposed to make you recognise that, you know, hey, okay, this is a task that I have to focus on because I have the potential to learn a lot right now. Um, and, you know, fear is really just something new, right? Like learning something new, doing something new, taking you outside your comfort zone. Comfort can be two things. It can be just being happy and comfortable or it can be, you know, I'm comfortable and I'm safe and not being hurt by anything. Um, I wasn't afraid of being hurt by going into the world, you know, physically hurt. I mean, yes, it was going to be a physical task, but I wasn't necessarily physically threatened by it. Um, but I had thought that I would, that I'd stagnated in my life at that point. Um, I was just earning money and I was going to get another job, which was going to be good, but really not all that fulfilling. And if I didn't take the opportunity to do something big and absolutely crazy at that stage when I wasn't encumbered by any responsibilities, then then maybe I never would. Yeah. And, and I thought, you know, maybe I'll get a book deal. Maybe maybe I'd make lots of YouTube videos and everyone would follow it and that would make me really a sensation and I could turn that into money. Um, maybe I could just keep doing it forever, just run around the world. How amazing. I mean, that's obviously ludicrous and didn't work out. But I remember ages ago discussing with my brother and my brother's mates about running and he said, or just um, suggested running a marathon because it will be amazing with my CV. I reckon come up almost 80% any interviews pre-stroke, always interested with the, the marathon runner. Sorry, long question, but um, <laughs> my question is, um, was there part of, about your experience, would you do your career or personal development? I actually think that's a really reasonable question. I, I think you're right. I, I would say something that helps you stand out in whether it's your LinkedIn profile or your CV or whatever it is, is what you like. In other words, who you are as a person, right? Not just what experience you have in a role that sets you up for being, you know, the right person for the gig. And these days, I would say more than ever, people are looking for cultural fits and cultural inspiration for their teams in their business. So it was a really easy thing for me to add to any CV that, yeah, I'm a really active person and I run marathons and stuff like that. It's a really nice talking point because, you know, well, what's your job? What's your experience? Blah, blah, blah. But what, what do you like as a person? What do you like to do? And I think being able to say that you're a marathon runner shows that you've, A, got, you know, like you're good, you're good at planning. You're able to stick to a process. Um, and if you can stick to the process, you can get outcomes. You can be goal-driven. And if you can be goal-driven and get through the hard yards of not just the training but getting the outcome and then going back and improving upon that again by doing better the next time, then that's a fantastic, like, you know, um, 
uh, what is that? I can't remember. It's called the Kanban method or something like that. It's all about constant improvement. Um, and, you know, the reality is that, like, I think running marathons is a great kind of, um, it has so many parallels to real life. Like you train really hard to learn how to do it better. You go and get to the start line. Getting to the start line is always important in anything you try to do, right? And if you can get to through task one, which is 10Ks, task two, which is halfway, task three, which is the three quarter, and you know you're a bit fatigued and things are probably not working out the way they're supposed to, if you can get to the finish line of your marathon or any life task, then it possibly not turned out perfectly, but it's turned out the way it was supposed to. And you take a lesson from that and apply it to the next thing you do. And I think that's a really great like understanding or um, personal awareness to have when you're tackling work as well, projects. And if you're going to inspire other people in your team, then you're a personally inspired person. You're not looking for other people to inspire you and keep you going. You, you've got already that energy within yourself and you can show that and you can prove it. So it's very helpful. Um, so did I think running 52 marathons around the world would then professionally advance me as such? Absolutely not. Do you know what I mean? Like, like I think that that's, you know, even now in retrospect, um, it was a whole level of crazy that no one was going to take seriously. And in fact, asking for money to, for sponsorship to go and have this wild adventure being not necessarily a known person or a known runner or anything like that um, was, I mean, it was a joke. I was asking for money and people were like, hey, it's a really good idea, but we're not going to give you sponsorship. And nor should they because it was a total unknown. It was global economic crisis and they were trying to keep their staff fed, you know, let alone worry about some guy that was going to have a world adventure. But later in that year, you know, everyone's like, wow, you should have come to us earlier and asked for sponsorship, you know, <laughs> because, I mean, this is such a cool story now. You're doing it. This is incredible. And actually, fundamentally, all opportunities opened up after that that helped my career and helped me do lots of other really interesting things that never would have occurred if I hadn't run all those marathons around the world. But was that my initial driver? Not at all. Read a book your, with your experience and called Run Like Crazy. Always plan to write a book after the journey or? Oh, interesting that you say that. Um, I was talking to another mate about that the other day. It was funny. Um, he, he, this, this friend of mine's writing a book and he's asking me about it and he's like, you know, so had you planned this out? And I'm like, no, you know, like, I mean, I wanted to just get to the start line. I, you know, a book was cool, but it wasn't really on my radar. In fact, you know, being that it was a YouTube kind of time, it was just the emergence of that. I thought that I'd be pretty smart to get YouTube videos out there and kind of turn that into a journey. And maybe that just turns itself into a movie, you know. Um, but in 2009, I got on the radio a lot because I was working for 3AW. I got in the paper a lot because they're all kind of, you know, they all listen to the various shows and they look for stories. So the newspapers wrote my story because I was on the radio. And then I got on TV a bunch. And um, one of the agents from Penguin, Pearson, whatever they're called now, um, reached out to me and said, hey, I'll, we will give you an advance um, for the rights to your story. And I'm like, that's so amazing. You know, and I've been, I haven't actually done anything yet. And it wasn't, you know, a stupid amount of money, you know, it was less than $10,000. But 
I was like really fascinated. I was in sales, right? So I've been in sales for a number of years up to that point. And I'm like, so just on the fact that I tell you that I'm going to do this big thing and that I got on the radio and stuff and there's enough excitement around it, you're going to give me a bunch of money and just call it an advance. And if it doesn't work and I break down and my leg falls off or something like that, you're not going to ask for that money back. And they said, that's right. I'm like, well, that much money isn't going to stop me from running around the world. But imagine how much money you're going to give me when I actually do this. Like, that's got to be worth more than this current conversation. And she was like, no, that's not how it works. That's not. <laughs> Pressuring yourself to, I guess, finishing it. Well, I, I kind of, I, I guess I took the pressure out of it. Like if I take money from people like that, that there's an expectation I have to write a book at the other end of it before I'd even started, that was that was, I mean, that's a different level than you wearing someone's shoes or flying someone's flag or wearing their name on your shirt. That's like, oh, I actually have to write a book at the end of this and I don't even know if I can do it. <laughs> um, I didn't, so I, I, I said no. And then later in the year, you know, I had a bunch of those conversations at the end of the year, we did a deal. So I was pretty lucky I got a book deal. Um, it's really hard as it turns out to get book deals, to get, you know, that signed off and get an advance at all. And it's less and less of a possibility these days. It's harder and harder to get it sorted. So yeah, I was super lucky, super lucky. Yeah. Let's go to, to discuss your 2010, your trip. Sounds like your runs were official marathons. So how do you prepare for the trip, including training before and logistics for example flights and hotels and stuff yeah i mean <laughs> Paul, we could sit here and talk for hours on this especially about the logistics because it was so hard to figure out um but let me do a quick summary on that i the thing that i found was that there were a bunch of not only that aims um list that i mentioned from the distance running magazine but there are a bunch of online sites that showed you running calendars race calendars from around the world they were pretty immature at that time it's not the right word for it but nonetheless in the sort of you know 2009 time frame i you know once again working for google um i had google earth set up on my computer which you couldn't just go online and finally you had to download a huge program and get like the planet there but it was a pretty new thing and it was pretty cool. So I sat for days and I'm talking like a long time, like hours and hours and hours just sitting on my desk, right, um, real late into the night, finding marathons that I wanted to do, you know, four or five in January, ended up with six because I could do one on New Year's Eve and then do one right at the end of the month as well. Six races in six countries in January and just putting a flag on this rotating map which is Google Earth, and I could work out the exact distances that I needed to each one, and then I'd go on Skyscanner and I'd work out the flights that I needed. But I talked to like travel agents, like a few travel agents about what I was going to do, and they're like, oh, it's not possible. But what you could do is remove these races and this race and that race and add this race because it's really easy for me to find a flight for you to go here and there, direct flights, and it's going to cost you this much, which was some stupid amount of money. Um, and I'm like, look, I've got $500 per flight. That's what I can afford. If you extrapolate that over the whole year, 
Some of them are going to be a hundred bucks and some of them are going to be $2,000. But work that out. That's the budget. And I'm not, I don't need to do direct flights. I could just fly back to the UK if it's a cheap flight and fly again. I don't care if it takes me extra, extra days. I could leave some stuff in London and go back for it. So that's not a bad outcome. They're just like, you're putting too many restrictions on the way we're planning this stuff. And I'm like, you're costing me 10%. Like, it's a lot of money when this is all the money I have to do this. You know, like potentially I give you $10,000 and you give me all these flights. I don't know if I should trust you to do this. And in the end, I started to be, I started to be a bit of a control freak about it. There was some stuff I'd hand over to other people to book, but there was all these really cool systems online those day in those days where you didn't need a travel agent to figure it out for you. You could go and use Skyscanner for all your flight bookings, compare it to other ones. You could go to Hostel World, Hotel Bookers, Hostel Bookers, whatever they're called. All of these various things had options for you. I only want to spend twenty to thirty dollars a night on accommodations. There's tons of places to look for those and all online you would have said in 2005 those systems didn't really exist or they were very rudimentary right you would have said in 2015 whole different world so many options do you know too many options to look for that stuff but in 2009 and 2010 it just started to become a thing where you could use these systems and have access to the internet in different parts of the world to consistently book all this stuff and the other thing that i did do was i made a very conscious decision not to book more than three months in advance. So the most that I was exposed in lost flights was, you know, 90 days. So potentially 10 flights, top thing. Um, and so that's not too bad. I wouldn't book my accommodation until I was two weeks away from the place that I was going. So I just knew if something went wrong, then I'm not financially exposed. And I had a mate with me for the first few months. This guy Dazzler, who was an incredible guy, loved him to death. I sold it to him as like the greatest traveling party that he'll ever have, you know? And it wasn't that. It wasn't. It was really hard. It was like I was beat up all the time. But then with my mate Daz, we'd go and get drunk because, you know, A, I didn't want to feel pain anymore. And B, I wanted to see all these really cool places we just traveled to. So, How yeah. important was the social side of the experience? I mean, I said no to a few potential sponsors, and, and, and that's not right. I asked for sponsorship, but I also said to the people that were looking for it, I said, I don't want to be told what I can and can't do in this year because this is the greatest year of my life, not anyone else's. And I'm going to be super selfish, and I'm going to do and do crazy stuff. I'm going to run with the bulls. I'm going to climb mountains. I'm going to go scuba diving. I'm going to go to a couple of music festivals like Ross Kilda Music Festival and stuff like that. I love music festivals. I'm going to do some dumb stuff and it's probably going to go on the internet. If people don't like that, that's just too bad. Do you know what I mean? Like I don't care. I don't want to be seen as I'm the perfect runner. I have to be in Cottonwall. I'm really looking after myself all the time. Rubbish. I might never come back to these places. I want to just have an incredible time um and i reckon that precluded me from a bunch of sponsorship if i'm honest paul i think that kind of they just said oh this guy's a loose cannon we probably don't <laughs> want to sponsor him running around a lot overcome a lot during this year issues like constant travel and 
jet lag and but also depression and um, loneliness and illness like when you had food poisoning in Mongolia. I guess um, how many times are you thinking about stopping and how you overcome this these difficulties well you know i mean in this conversation we haven't even really listed all the places i went to right but as you say there was mongolia there but i i started in australia the at 2009 2010 kind of the turn of that that year um i was in um zurich doing the marathon um in you know sort of new's eve 2010 i went to berlin then to Israel, then to India, then to, you know, across to wherever, you know, like the Canary Islands and, you know, a couple of, like a couple months or so later, I'm in Japan and then, you know, I bounced back into Europe. Then I went to the Great Wall of China and ran over there and, you know, I ended up over in South America for a while down, you know, in the, um, down in Argentina and places like that. I went to Easter Island off the coast there. Um, I went and did uh, the Trans-Siberian Railway, but I started in Mongolia and ended up across the other side of the country, back into Moscow and then up to Finland and then across to Canada. So I really moved. I was moving fast. I was getting to places. I was not there more than a few days. And then I'd already had the place where I needed to get to next. And so there's some really good things that come out of that. There's no possibility that you're going to stagnate that you're just going to sit and stop. It's just not going to happen, right? So you only got a few days, and if you've come to a new place, you're going to see as much as possible. So you just get up, and you just go and walk around that city and check it out. And I'm naturally a very inquisitive person. I just want to see stuff. So I was just walking around checking everything out. The downside is I was tired all the time, and I just had to get food where I could get it, and I couldn't cook for myself all the time because I was in hostels, and it was just a bit cheap and crap, but I did my best. I ate very simple food because I'm actually a very simple food eater. I can, you know, happily just eat three veggies and, you know, some meat and that's it. Um, I ate a lot of brown rice. I thought for some no particular reason that brown rice or natural rice, which is very easy to get in any country you go to, um, was just a really easy uh, staple to have as part of my diet. Um, but... I'd try some street food here and there, and of course I got sick. I'd go to a restaurant. I went to a restaurant in Mongolia um, after we'd done a 100K race. We did a 100K race in the western side of Mongolia and then went back to Ulaanbaatar, had to be feast at a restaurant, all, you know, organised by the the, uh, the race organisers, the event organisers, had this big feast. I reckon five people got so sick that, that day, this post-race luckily, um, that they had chills and sweats and just wanted to leave the country because they felt so sick they just wanted to go home. I didn't just want to leave the country. I just wanted to get on the train that I was supposed to get on the next day and go and cruise across, you know, Siberia. Unfortunately, I had, like, my guts were a mess and I had the shakes and going through Siberia, I, I was just so – I felt so sick and tired having to actually deal with people as well. Oh, it was the middle of summer, luckily, so it was really beautiful and warm out there. Um, but even the hostels I went to in places like Tomsk and Omsk, I mean, they'd never had an Australian come and stay at these places. Like these were just, 
out of the way, tiny student hostels. In one place, Tom's, they'd never had a hostel before. They only just opened it. And when I showed up there, I was the only person staying in the hostel. In fact, the receptionist just kind of said after me being there for an hour or two, okay, I'm going home now. I'll see you later. And I was just standing in the hostel by myself. Uh, I was so alone and still so sick. And so, yeah, I got depressed. I felt lonely. I didn't know what to do. I would just walk around these cities or go for a little run and look around. I'd have to get a new SIM card in every region that I went to in Siberia because if you go to the next zone, your SIM card doesn't work anymore. Um, it's like changing states and your SIM card doesn't work and therefore you just you run through your credit in a heartbeat like doing an international call. So you'd have to get another one, top it up. You know, it was a big hassle. But I wanted to talk to my family. And Wi-Fi in these places was horrendous, you know. So you just had to try to get a SIM card, make a couple of phone calls, send some texts, done, you know, next place. Yeah. I, I think you said you tried to break yourself and um, try to push in the boundaries, obviously. Explain that. Well, I didn't need to do 100K races. Okay. I just didn't need to. Yeah. You know what I mean? No one was expecting it. I wanted to see what would happen if I did a 100K race. Um, I did, to get to that first 100K race in Mongolia, I did two marathons in two days um, straight after doing the running of the bulls, which honestly scared the hell out of me. Like I was so scared running away from these bulls, running into a stadium, and I just thought I was going to get gored. Um, I had a friend of mine, Rebecca, who travelled over from uh, Australia to travel around Europe, actually. She didn't come see me at all. But she went to the World Cup soccer for work and then she came over to Europe and she agreed to meet up with me and she came to Pamplona and we went to the running of the Bulls and that was awesome. And she was just going to leave after that, but then she'd said she'd come in the car with me and we'd drive across France and we'd go to Switzerland. So we did. And then luckily she was there to drive me to Italy after that because that was a race the next day. And if I had done all of that by myself, I would have crashed the car and died. No doubt about it. Like absolutely no doubt about it. Um, but Rebecca is Rebecca that we mentioned on the call earlier. Rebecca's my wife now. Um, you know, so that was our moment to get to know each other in a road trip. Um, we sort of knew each other back in Australia, but then we didn't know each other. And I was like doing these marathons back to back so I could get some hills experience and some back to back marathon experience so I could try to do this 100k race 10 days later. And I flew from, I had to take the car back to Spain, but I, from Italy, drop it there, fly over to Moscow, then fly up to Ulaanbaatar and then go across the western side of Mongolia. And all of this took a bunch of time. But when I did that 100K race, like I actually did pretty well. And I realised that, you know, I built my capacity to A, withstand a fair bit of pain, but B, to just go, to just keep going when other people start failing, just keep pushing. So I came second in that 100K race, which was really good, totally unexpected. But then as I was travelling back across to Europe on the Trans-Siberian Railway, I started looking at these other races that I could do. And I was missing a race, like I was missing a, a race. It just I lost a bit of time going to Mongolia and I had to make one up. And I, sent, I remember sending a message to Beck saying, um, what if I did this race in, uh, in Norway? in Stavanger because I can get there. It's hard, but I can get up to there. I could get into a train trip with this guy that I know um, from 
um, uh, Oslo across and it would be really cool. But then I could fly down to Copenhagen and I could get like a ferry overnight to be on the Sunday on this island called Bornholm Island and they've got a 100K race there and a marathon. But if I did the marathon on the Saturday and then the 100K race, like, like people would just think that's crazy. Like how amazing would that be if I could pull that off? And she's like, like, why are you trying to break yourself? Like why this is total sabotage of what you're trying to achieve. You've got months of this to come. And I'm like, well, I don't think I'm going to break myself, but your reaction to it means that I'm on the right track because this is all about being a bit crazier than the next person would be, not playing it safe. Like the year was not supposed to be about playing it safe. It was supposed to be about pushing the envelope all the time. Run with the bulls, like do dumb stuff, like try harder than anyone else would in that circumstance. The last run was Antarctica. So was a, a risk that you not finishing the following week after such a tough run with the ice and cold conditions? Oh, I mean, to be honest, at that end of the year, I just I wanted to get home in time to do one more marathon in Australia, so I did all seven continents. When I planned my year, I had no idea if I was going to Antarctica. And you have to remember that in 2009, you're planning for 2010 and the end of 2010, they hadn't even run the races in 2009 yet. So whatever date you put in for what happens later 2010 is not a real date. Like it's just an assumption that things will play out. I'd sent a bunch of emails to the organisers of the Antarctic Ice Marathon. I asked this guy, Richard Donovan, who's an incredible guy, an Irish guy who set up this race, um, if he could help me out. And he did. He gave me a little discount to get to, you know, to participate in the event, help me sort of organise some flights down there. Um, but I didn't know if I was going to go until the probably June of 2010. So it's halfway through my year. And then by the time I got to the end of the year, I couldn't believe I was going to Antarctica. I mean, it costs an absolute bomb, like $15,000 to go to Antarctica. You know, like it's it's just so much money, right? Like it was a large percentage of all the money I'd spent that year just for one more adventure down there. But I'm like, but imagine if you do all seven continents. I'm like, imagine, you know? And I've managed managed to say it in that way, like, how cool would this be if I could pull very, this off uh, as well? Very few club, seven continents. Yeah, all seven continents, a very small club of people, let alone do it in one year. I mean, there's actually a bunch of people that have done it in seven days, right? So Richard Donovan being the first, one of the first people to ever do that, he still holds the speed record for doing seven marathons in seven days. But he actually led a bunch of people to do that almost on an annual thing to take them to different parts and do all these races in under seven days. So how cool is that? And yet, for me to do it in a year, along with 52 marathons, I don't reckon there's many people that will do all 50, 52 marathons in 52 weeks and that. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like it's one thing to commit a whole year to marathons. It's another thing to do all that and do all the continents as well. Yeah. Like financially that's difficult. Time-wise that's really difficult. It will remain like a um, – it will remain my trophy for quite some time. Yeah. So how do you um, maintain your body and any any injuries? I got a bunch of injuries. Um, you know, by the time I got to Antarctica, and Antarctica wasn't the last race, it was the second last race. So there was one more race in uh, in Australia. But by the time I got to Antarctica, I was really sick. I had like a chest infection. 
Um, I'd had that chest infection on and off for the last three months though. So I'd taken a bunch of antibiotics and you know how antibiotics just ruins your body. Do you know what I mean? Like they're just not good for your system. So I didn't feel well from that. So I was coughing and I was coughing so hard and it was a really racking cough. And I've always had bronchial issues growing up. Like, you know, my mum says I had a bit of pleurisy when I was a wee baby. I don't know even if that's true. It's just what she told me, (laughs) you know. Um, So some of my lung was dead and therefore if I get sick, I just cough like I'm barking like a seal, you know. Um, I coughed a lot at that end of the year. I was coughing up blood which wasn't pretty, um, but I was still running and probably putting a lot of pressure on my system. So probably wasn't just that my lungs are a bit shot and that I was a bit sick. I was just putting a lot of pressure on my body all the time. And I, and before I went to Antarctica, I mean, I came from the Cayman Islands and from, you know, uh, from the Caribbean. Like it wasn't, you know, I went from hot to cold, cold, you know. So I wasn't doing my body any favours or my lung or my, my you know, anything any favours. And yet before... Before that, like, in fact, in Jamaica, while I was in the Caribbean, I got to a point where my toenails had been so infected and I'd had to take antibiotics for that too, that I had to rip my toenails out. So my big toenails were kind of hanging on a bit. Um, So I had to rip them out. My toes were really bruised up. Um, You know, like I'd pulled, strained a bunch of muscles, but I hadn't torn anything. Not, Not really, not, not a tear in a way that, was going to stop me from continuing to run. So, yeah, which is just dumb luck. Like, like should have torn something. So. <laughs> How many uh, pairs of shoes did you throw through? Go through. Uh, only seven pairs of shoes, and it would have been more, except that I was moving really quickly, and you know, even companies like companies like Nike and Saucony, which you know wanted to help me. Um, they'd send me shoes, and if they didn't show up in time, or they weren't the right type of shoes, or whatever then I just didn't take them with me. And and my sister lived in London. My sister Alexis lived in London at the time. She'd collect all these parcels that would show up of people sending me stuff to help me out. And I'd show up and if the shoes were the right size, I'd wear them. If they were not, I just left her some shoes hmm. and kept on going. Yeah. And your experience, you fundraise for UNICEF and facing Africa charities. Um, yep. And you felt a bigger connection with underprivileged countries and i also you said you have a more patient person you can explain that so i think fundamentally as australians we we don't really value the education that we get in a way that we should that we don't appreciate it and you know if i looked even back then um at all the things that i'd done you know got a good job had good opportunities did cool stuff in my life like all of that was as a result of having a decent enough education to make some good decisions about professionally what i wanted to do and no one forced me in any direction there like there were suggestions from parents and you know whatever teachers and whatnot try this do this do that but at the end of the day i got to decide and i got to decide because i had a good education um i would say in most countries and and you have to remember at the start of that year uh, haiti had had that earthquake um and it was a horrendous situation there like horrendous like people just starving you know without access to decent water food anything like that um there were like the um volcano went off up in iceland 
and all of these like flights got cancelled all over the place and all these people started to get stuck in various places and I went to India and you know there was all these people stuck just like in shanties and you know I went to South Africa and there's all these people stuck in like you know the well, they're not favelas whatever the townships and whatnot and I just kept comparing my experiences in all these places like in Denmark I can't I couldn't afford a beer because it's really expensive to buy beer but then you go to when I South Africa you can afford 100 beers but you know like what you probably should be doing is buying someone else some food <laughs> you know I just it's education that allows people to do good stuff and yet education isn't freely available to everyone and so when I thought to support UNICEF I'm going to admit to you Paul that it was some of it was for selfish reasons I thought it's a global charity that people will recognize um, and if they want to give money to it then that money is going to a cause that I believe in at least I wasn't motivated to run around the world to support UNICEF. And I admit that I was being very selfish in that year. It wasn't about raising money for that cause. But throughout that year, in my darkest times, when I thought about raising money for uh, UNICEF, and then later the guys in the Cayman Islands and some people there asked me to get involved and support Facing Africa as well. Then when I read about the situation that, that Facing Africa supports, which is basically a, a disease that distorts people's faces and absolutely ruins their chances of education or to survive, it was really confronting. And I kept looking at these pictures and thinking about these people. So when I was in these really dark places, I, I kind of found them as the reason to keep going because otherwise it was really easy to just decide to go home because what do I really have to prove? Once you run 30 marathons in 30 countries around the world, like no one else has really done this. Like, it's still a good story. Why don't you done 40? Uh, no one's done that and I'm pretty tired and I'm pretty broken and I don't, really don't want to run anymore. I want to go home. I just kept looking at those images and sites and the people that I was helping. The problem is, Paul, and, you know, admitting this to you here, it's it's not a new thing for me. I've admitted, admitted it a few times. I, um, I raised nearly $20,000 that year for these causes, but I spent $120,000 that year as well so i've never really been able to reconcile the fact that i went and spent 120 grand on me and yes i would have said i inspired a whole lot of people and did some cool stuff but the reality is i only actually helped a very small number of people in that process it's something at least yeah it's something yeah it's something i think i could have continued to do a bit more and help a few more people in that process and, and don't get me wrong i've done some fundraising and all that kind of stuff since then but yeah, I think it's I think it's admirable those people that do get out there and raise more money and help more people. Mm. How does this experience change you? I think that it removed a bunch of barriers. Um, I'm not saying they're not still there in some form, but my willingness to try new things and to press pressure myself to to work harder to to want want more from life. I think that is a natural occurrence of me doing something so extreme i think i think what it happens is it just becomes it normalizes extreme like my mate went and swam the english channel and i'm like oh yeah i could do that do you know what i mean i went and ran uh the marathon de Sahara, which is like 250 k's across the, the sahara desert yeah. and a lot of people are like i'm not sure if i can do this i'm like well i can totally do this 
you know, I can run 300 kilometers across the Alps in the Transalpine race. Like I can totally do that. 160 miles, 160K, sorry, for the 100-mile races. Sure, it's just going to take more time. But there's never a race or an event that I look at and go, I couldn't do that. I could do it. It's just, am I going to have fun doing it? That's the bit that I get stuck on. Like I'm still a bit of the fun guy comes out am i gonna do this and have a good time yeah or is it just gonna be a total suffer fest and i'm gonna hate it well i don't want to have a total suffer fest without some beautiful scenery like yeah. i want to see some stuff as well yeah you know? i i have a adventurous spirit also and uh i, yeah. I love there are lots of countries i would love to see um what about now with uh having a wife and kids your adventurous spirit still there so so yes and i feel like i found the right wife because she's you know adventure driven and um you know even when my son was a very he was only five months old we were sitting on a beach in mexico and doing stuff you know uh, i'd only just a month before sorry a couple of weeks before that run a hundred mile race in colorado and my little son was being dragged around by my wife while i was running these races so that was cool Obviously, in lockdown, it's a lot harder to be that level of adventurous, globally speaking. For me, with I think my ultimate goal now is that one day, either of my kids, my son or my daughter, who are currently six and four, so they're still just starting out, if they ask me to get on a plane with them and go somewhere, <laughs> well, I'm just going to say yes to everything. I'm just going to say yes to all of it. And because one day they'll just go, oh, Dad, I just want to go by myself. You can just go away now. But if my son or daughter is 15 and says, oh, I want to go and see something, I want to go to the Rockies in Colorado, in in Canada or, you know, whatever, or I want to go and see a castle in Germany, in Bavaria, I am just going to go, okay, okay, well, let's figure this out. You don't have to you know, stump up some pocket money here, you know, or get a job to make sure you can pay for a few things along the way. But I want to have that adventure with them to teach them how to have adventures. Um, I don't know. I just, as a parent, I, I think it's better than university. I don't know. I, I know that university is really important. Of course, my kids have to go to have a good education of some sort, whether it's uni or whatever, um, so that they can emerge into the world with opportunities and options but i think just that the world is a big and yet small place is also a very important life lesson i assume you're still running marathons i am i am i just ran the canberra marathon a couple of months ago with um aforementioned kevin lieberthal absolutely left me in his dust in his wake (laughs) Um, while surging on for a personal best marathon. Uh, I did not run a PB. What's your personal best? It's two two hours and 56 minutes. Wow, that's quick. Um, Which I, well, it is quick, but it was a few years ago now. It was um, 2015, and that's six years ago. And I convinced myself a few years ago that I'll probably never go faster than that. But I'm starting to feel quick again. (laughs) I'm starting to feel strong. And so... I've been doing some heavy sessions lately, but I am actually starting to feel kind of quick. And I've got some mates that are all vying at the Gold Coast Marathon to do like 240 something in their marathon. And these are all guys that I used to run with and thought that I could easily stay with. And I'm like, you know what? I've set my sights too too low here. 
these guys are absolutely belting out incredible times and I don't really want to be left behind. I want to start to really kind of lift up. That's the plan. What about um, any other marathons you want to do with interesting countries like Everest Marathon at Nepal or... Well, I didn't get to do it that year. I actually looked at that as a possibility, the base camp race, and they cancelled it the year that I was doing it because they didn't get enough entrance or there were some other restrictions or something, and so they didn't do it. Admittedly, it's pretty hard to fit that race into 52 marathons in, you know, in a year because you're supposed to be there for a good couple of weeks to acclimatise as you get up to base camp, and then from base camp you run down for 42 kilometres. Um, I would love to do that. Do I want to climb Everest? No. Um, I would like to do some other famous races like the Stockholm Marathon. is a really famous race that I never got to. Um, and I would like to do the Dublin Marathon. Like I did the Belfast Marathon, but not the Dublin Marathon. It's really famous. Um, I would like to go back to do Berlin for a third time, New York for a third time. I would like to do Boston and Chicago and all those again, Tokyo again, because um, they were so much fun. Um, but there are plenty, plenty, plenty of marathons around the world that I've never got to. So I'd like to try all of them. One day, I'm nearly, I'm coming up towards 100 marathons as official marathons. Um, I'm at 76 now. I've done another sort of... Including the you know, ultras? The, no, there's another like 30 ultras on top of it. So, but they don't count to your official 100 marathon club palette. Uh, working with full-time at... Shopify, how do you balance everything, running every day, working full-time, public speaking, organising your running groups, and being a husband and dad? Can I say that I do all of it badly? (laughs) You can. Uh, um, I am good at focusing on things that I enjoy, and I am good at... I'm I'm good at also, I don't know, spreading myself a little thin sometimes. So the things that I enjoy is I like working and I work for a company that's a very inspiring company. Shopify is an absolute, absolute behemoth globally in the e-commerce world. It's got like 1.7 million merchants on Shopify. Like it's, we're doing fine. You know, it's a Canadian company. I work for a Canadian company so I can travel because they need me in Canada sometimes. And yet these days I'm remote. I'm at home a lot. I used to love traveling as part of work. My running suffered because of my travel, which wasn't ideal. My family suffered because of my travel for work, which was not ideal. I find in the last year or so this, you know, because of COVID, I'm stuck at home a lot and I'm with my family more and I've never been so inspired and happy because I'm around my wife, who I just think is the most tremendous person on the planet. And I'm around my two kids who I just think are the coolest, smartest, funniest kids ever. And so it's pretty easy to give them some time. Is it a distraction from my work? Yes. Is You know, I mean, in this day and age, luckily, that's, a, you know, most companies are pretty understanding around that. I only really, I, I don't think of myself as a coach per se. I think of myself as an organiser and an administrator of a running club or a group of running clubs. There's a South Yarra group, there's an Elwood group, and there's a Brunswick group. And all of those groups have autonomous coaches that do what they think is right for those groups. But I just send out sessions for them to do. 
So actually, after this talk, I will send a session to each of those groups via WhatsApp and say, given that you can't run together tomorrow, you know, as a group, run individually and run in pairs while we're in isolation um, and try to do this session while you're out there. And it's really just a guide. And I put it on Instagram um, as well under the Run Like Crazy moniker. And... I do all of that okay, but I only have to post things a few times a week and then I just encourage everyone on Strava and I send a bunch of messages via WhatsApp. So I don't really have to do too much to organise things. They're pretty self-sufficient, which I love because, you know, then I don't. I can just be the excited guy and go, yeah, well, let's run more. How good's running without having to do too much organising? And I still do some public speaking. And I think for a while that was my job and it was a great job to have because you got paid to talk about yourself. But after a while, it became a job and it became a bit frustrating because I kept talking about my past, not who I was in that moment. Um, and these days I see it as an absolute luxury for someone to pay me to show up, to tell my story to a big group of people. And I've got to tell you, they still do. I just did a gig for Officeworks recently. Uh, next week I'm supposed to be in Sydney for a speaking gig up there, which I don't think is going to happen. Um, and when I condense my talk into a one hour, really punchy session, it's actually really fun. And it's a really fun, uh, story to tell. And quite a few people laugh and cry at the end of it because it was a bit of an emotional roller coaster. But the fact that people ask me to do that and schools still ask me, invite, I'm supposed to go to a school next week and tell my story to a bunch of year 12s to inspire them throughout their year. Like, that's pretty cool. That's a really nice thing to do. I mean, I'm going to take time off work to go and do that. And in fact, my work is like, oh, you went and inspired a bunch of year 12s to do cool things in their life and you told them that you work for Shopify. You can do that. It's okay. You go right ahead, you know. <laughs> so I have a pretty good balance of that stuff in my life. How do I manage it all? I, 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 like I said, I just keep it moving. I wouldn't say that I do any of it really, really well. I just keep it moving. Before wrapping up, any you have uh, any comments or questions for me? Well, how are you feeling? Like you hear this story from me of stuff that I just take for granted running around the world and doing all that kind of stuff. What do you think about that? Like, does that make you want to get more movement and do more stuff? Does that make you go, well, this guy's kind of annoying me because he's just talking casually about running and doing all this stuff that I can't do anymore? What does it make you think? I lost my stroke. I was not able to run. Um, I was few knee issues before that. Um, and I'm now starting to, well, learning to run is amazing feeling. Um, I'm loving it. I'm pretty slow, and but I'm um, getting there. And um, yeah, I think running is sort of um, clears my mind with happy stuff. Yeah, it's a gift, isn't it? It allows you to just focus on something really simple that clears a lot of the rubbish out of our heads. Mm. I'm not sure your answer to your your answers correct because sometimes I struggle with um, understanding sometimes. But uh, I think so. Not sure. Yeah. No, that was a great answer, mate. That was perfect. But, uh, yeah, thank you very much, Tristan. Thank you for um, taking your time to speak. And I uh, really appreciate it a lot. No.
I really appreciate you, you know, inviting me onto the show, Paul, and having a good chat to me, mate. It's really, really fascinating to talk uh, to you, to A, tell my story, but also to just get a feel for where you're at and the fact that you're inspiring other people through these conversations. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tristan, for the chat. It was amazing to get an insight into your pretty unique experience and open and honest conversation about the challenges you have faced in your life. Tristan is an inspiration to many. And while he inspired people with his crazy running escapades, his own motivation comes from more simple things. His family, his work, and a desire to continue to improve his running. Having run two marathons myself, I can relate to that motivation and chasing that sense of achievement, though maybe not the busted up body and injuries that Tristan had to endure. Tristan's story is a reminder that with the right mindset and focus, we can achieve more than we think we're capable of. So thank you Tristan again for sharing your story. Hopefully you can understand my speech in the interview, despite my ongoing aphasia. And thank you for listening in. If you like that podcast, follow the show for free. And to stay up to date with me, follow my blog at iampaulfink.com.au. Shout out to the Stroke Foundation for helping to fund this project. Visit their website for more information about Sign of Stroke. Thanks again to my friends Corey Layton, David Rood and Andrew Weiss for your ongoing support and make this podcast possible. Thanks also to Nick Morachu from My Sport Live for the work on editing and thanks for the roles for the very cool artwork. Last but not least, Thank you to my speed therapists, Gemma Duffield for coming up with the podcast idea initially, Claire Douglas and Lauren Flusher for helping with brainstorming and writing. That's it for this episode. Keep positive, keep happy and all the best. Cheers.